The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. The charity and international development sectors are steeped in institutional racism. We see it at all levels, from boardrooms full of white decision makers exercising their power to choose which cause, program or project to fund, or from charities working on issues affecting vulnerable communities without any representation from those communities themselves. Or even in international development, where many organisations were born out of colonial traditions that still influence programming, hiring and decision-making at the structural level. Many of us within the charity and international development sectors would not consider ourselves guilty of participating in racism. But the reality is that for those of us who benefit from white privilege, we are active participants in a sector that has its roots in colonialism and white saviorism. To help explore this further, I invited John Cornejo from Charity So White, a people of colour-led campaign group seeking to tackle institutional racism in the charity sector, grounding their work in the lived experience of people of colour working in the sector. While Charity So White is based in London, their advocacy work is applicable globally. John is a campaigner and activist working with Save the Children UK, leading campaigning and organising work on the Protecting Children in Conflict campaign. He has previously worked with Amnesty International in the UK, leading reactive campaigns in response to human rights crises. Throughout his career in the charity sector, John has worked with people of colour to highlight issues of systemic racism and push leaders to tackle institutional racism in their own organisations. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, John. Hi, nice to be here. Lovely to have you. John, I want to ask you something that I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? That's a good place to start because I think it has changed a lot in my head and I think it's probably still in flux a lot at the moment. I'm still relatively early on in my career and I'm still sort of working my way up through the sector. So I think for a long time, I sort of bought into the sort of general idea of doing good and sort of like, I guess, tackling big problems and sort of measuring them in a particular way and sort of seeing impact in this through a particular lens in terms of how many supporters we got or whether a certain policy wording was changed and sort of these very sort of specific circumstances. For a long time, I think I also bought into the idea that like good intentions are as good as doing good. Um, I think I'm sort of challenging and questioning that a lot in my head at the moment and sort of seeing the more I sort of dive into uh, work on systemic racism with charities at white, especially I'm sort of challenging a lot of these structures and a lot of these ideas and sort of how even this perception and sort of, of good intentions and uh, good being good people can be uh, problematic and can uh, buy into sort of systemic oppression in various different ways. 
Um, so I think um, I'm not quite sure at the moment. I think doing good for me right now is just trying to sort of find a place where you can be yourself and do your work in a way that feels genuine to yourself without having to buy into sort of wider structures um, of sort of neoliberalism and capitalism, oppression of various different forms and all of these different aspects of it. But I think uh, it can be very difficult to find that place. Absolutely. And you work in the charity sector. So obviously there's something within you that's driven you to want to work in the the helping space. Has that always been something you wanted? It kind of came as a bit of a light bulb moment, I think, um, through, like, I mean, it's not like a traditional career. It's not like you don't grow up and like things like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a fireman, like in the same way as like, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be an NGO worker. It's just not something that will ever cross your mind as a child. But I think just that idea of like helping people has always been something that has been sort of deeply ingrained. I grew up in Ecuador. I'm Latino. I'm a first generation migrant in the UK very different experiences across all of these different things and just growing up with a lot of poverty particularly around where we lived and in terms of the economy being quite bad at the time i remember growing up and being quite young and just getting quite upset at people sort of begging on the streets or sort of the sort of visible poverty that was around with those experiences and sort of with my own experiences of migration and then coming through the school system and suddenly discovering that politics is a thing that you can study <laughs> that kind of opened some curiosity in terms of wanting to find out more about how these structures and how these systems work and trying to tap into some sort of like i think in my head there was something like there is a way that this works and there is a way i can understand it and possibly then understand why these things happen and maybe change them and i think just through my own sort of developing of my own understanding around that I then came to activism particularly within the liberation space particularly within LGBT rights um, around uh, the university town that I was living in Canterbury and Kent which is quite conservative and from there I kind of was in the space like I could go into academia and do more work around sort of politics and social movements or I could try the charity sector for a bit and I haven't quite looked back yet. Uh, so how did you first get involved with the charity so white movement? Yeah so I remember just when it started off and when it started to emerge um, there was a an organisation called Citizens Advice here in the UK, internal training around uh, working with BAME communities that um, leaked. And this has like, been going on for some time, but I think just a particular slide that highlighted a lot of really problematic, stereotypical views around cash-centric societies and a whole bunch of things uh, really sparked a conversation in the UK um, just around people of colour's experiences in the charity sector and sort of various forms of racism and sort of really everyday racism that was happening. And for me, it was just a moment of realising that all of these different conversations, all of these different issues I've been going through and sort of talking about with my friends uh, weren't just happening to us alone. It wasn't a unique thing to the organisation I was in at the time. These things were happening everywhere and suddenly you start building that network and that really public facing conversation is the really big change that sort of starts shifting the narrative within the sector. So I joined really at the first opportunity after following them for a couple of months. And they started uh, branching out to grow the organising committee um, and I joined about October through a very interesting and different process in terms of ensuring culture fit and um, sort of very different recruitment process to what I've been used to and I haven't really looked back. And since then I've just been regular committee meetings and all sorts of work in terms of getting myself more embedded in that world of anti-racism and the charity sector. And you work for Save the Children, is that right? Yeah. How has that 
kind of accepted your involvement in Charity So White, accepted within the organisation? They've been quite good. I think I've been quite lucky uh, that I've got a really supportive uh, line manager. And, um, well, my last two line managers have been really supportive and also the director of campaigns there as well is um, quite supportive about um, sort of I think learning and development in general. So as part of our contracts, we have a principle of like on-job learning, but also sort of various different um, side things you can do. So I think you're supposed to, you, you get up to 10% of your time should be on learning and development specifically. So as part of that, they've allowed me to sort of see Charities of White as part of that. So it means I've got more flexibility when it, you know, when there's a journalist that wants to do an interview during the day and it can be a struggle for others like I can jump in far easier and I think there's just been some practical things that they've been very good at in terms of supporting and allowing me to be flexible with my time. Through your role with Charity So White have you been able to affect some change within the organisation around the issues that we're talking about? It's taken some time I mean SAFE is a gigantic organization so like things take time uh, but I think we are making some really solid progress a part of it is through my involvement with Charity So White and sort of bringing in different discussions and the wider work that we've done across the sector in terms of shifting the narrative uh, on racism in the sector into more sort of structures of power and power and privilege so that working alongside the work that um, BAME staff people of color staff in the uh, organization have been doing for a while in terms of talking about our own experiences talking about various sort of forms of oppression that people have faced and uh, various issues specifically to the organization these two things have kind of come together uh, particularly recently in with the black lives matter movement as well as a sort of another impetus for change has uh, led to um, a really quite positive statement i thought from the organization in response committee uh, to specific changes and to specific work around anti-racism. So um, these things can feel like they take some time, but um, you do get there in the end. So what do you think it is about the Charity So White movement that caused it to um, become so prominent? What was happening that enabled it to kind of rise out of all the voices and, and become prominent? I think there's a like there's a certain, definitely a certain element of like right place at the right time where I do think the sector was ready for that form of challenge. The sector as a whole and kind of leaders uh, across the sector had for a while been talking around uh, diversity and inclusion, various different ways, uh, I think particularly data-centric ways of uh, sort of looking at, uh, we don't have enough people of colour, we need to increase diversity and in looking at particular metrics and in a particular frame. And I think that work prepared leadership to start to get it a bit more and to at least understand where the discussion was going. So I think that in itself enabled us to really push that discussion a lot further. But I think also like the biggest thing was just uh, bringing these conversations to the forefront to the public space. I think one of our core things is around having open and honest conversations around this and how doing that in a public setting is, uh, can be really key towards uh, accountability. And I think having the discussions and the sort of experiences of people of colour out on Twitter and sort of being in a sort of place where it really can't be ignored. Again, it started conversations internally in organisations uh, across different levels. It was something that the leadership couldn't ignore anymore. And um, we're seeing that trend now towards um, looking at this through a different narrative frame. What changes have you seen since the Black Lives Matter movement has really come to the forefront of the conversation? 
We've made progress and we've also gone backwards a bit in a way. I think we were sort of really prepared for like really long term slog of a work in terms of like really sort of starting with key leaders and getting some winning some allies and sort of uh, working on some particular people and just like iterative shift uh, towards that narrative change and trying to pull the focus away from diversity and inclusion and towards more power and privilege and structured based thinking. But then uh, the Black Lives Matter movement comes along and sort of, I think, for anti-racism and sort of race issues across the world, it suddenly shifts the conversation drastically in a really important way. And I think there's something in the way that charities operate, I think, particularly now in the age of social media, in the way, in the age of sort of rapid comms and rapid response, where things like this are seen through the lens of PR and media opportunities. And I think where it becomes a thing where like, everyone's saying something about this we have to say something too there was an opportunity there where i think a lot of organizations i think a lot of people in general as well so it was like i have to put up a black square or i have to make a statement or i have to do this sort of fluffy action and it'll make racism go away and that was a really great opportunity to us it's like actually that's not enough you need to go deeper you need to do some thinking you need to think about how uh, you individually how you as an organization buy into these systems buy into these structures and how you can make firm commitments to challenge them and shift things. So it's certainly pulled the conversation to, into a far deeper place of uh, analysis and self-analysis that um, we thought would take us a lot longer to get to. And you mentioned that you thought it had kind of brought you back or held you back a little bit in, in some ways as well. How is that? So that desire to sort of like respond immediately and have something out and sort of declare that you're an anti-racist organization. There was a lot of people I thought that were making good progress in the sector that suddenly just did it entirely the wrong way here and just like put um, a statement out that doesn't really have any weight behind it. It doesn't have any actions. It doesn't have any real reflection on how the organization has bought into these systems and structures in the past and what they're going to do to change it. I think in that sense, it made us realize that some of the people that we think are doing well actually have a hell of a lot more learning to do. uh, And we need to sort of carry on those conversations and really try and underline that point around uh, power and privilege and structures of oppression a bit more with those people. Absolutely. I was reading on the Charity So White website and you talk about uh, speaking about power and privilege over diversity and inclusion. And it got me wondering, has the focus on diversity and inclusion shifted the lens away from challenging those inherently racist structures that exist in the sector? It's interesting to look at that because in some ways it's taking the very sort of personal sometimes problem of racism and the ways that it can really deeply impact someone and the way it impacts white people in terms of the and sort of everyone in general. But it's taking that and kind of commodifying it. It's developing structures, it's developing a product around it that you can sell to organizations. And you see consultancies and sort of various different HR movements sort of commodifying this thing. And I think that's where I think I have a big issue with diversity and inclusion as a frame, at least in the UK and in my sort of perspective and my experience of it, it started out as like equality and diversity, then it becomes equality and diversity and inclusion, and then equality gets dropped and it's just diversity and inclusion. And I think there's a lot of questions around like, what do these words actually mean? What is the real concept and the ideology behind each of them? And what are they trying to achieve? And I think when you look at a lot of the actual products that come out of it, such as blind hiring practices or removing names from applications, like there's certainly 
a lot of validity behind that, but it's not tackling the underlying structures, the underlying ideologies. It's not really tackling the fact that like, yeah, you can take someone's name off of an application, but there are still, there will still be various markers across that person's writing style, their experiences, their background that might, what their background is and might still bring up some of those biases. And I think then you look at sort of things like unconscious bias and the framing around uh, that sort of terminology and that idea, it sort of tells people that it's okay, it's not your fault. This is unconscious. You're not intending to be racist. You're not intending to be discriminatory. We just have to be aware of our unconscious biases. Whereas, again, that doesn't tell you, like, you are a part of a system of oppression that puts white people above all others, that sort of buys into these ideas. You're not analysing what these ideas mean. You're not asking people to reflect on that and really start to challenge their own ways of thinking and uh, change those ways of thinking. So yeah, there's um, a long way between sort of diversity and inclusion as a commodified HR lens to anti-racism. I mean, how do organisations, particularly large organisations who do have big HR departments and and you know are invested in trying to put processes in place that fit a whole organization that could be thousands and thousands of people how are they responding to the need to do that work to actually challenge their own whether it's conscious or unconscious bias how does that fit into a system a HR system, for example, and how are they approaching it? I think at the moment, it's just a lot of confusion. When you look at traditional ways of working, and I think particularly a lot of these professional frames that exist uh, within HR and within uh, organisations as a whole, you're kind of taught the like to just value data to like a really high level. But I think there's also like a problem where we don't necessarily understand that data enough and we're not necessarily digging enough. So I think it can be quite easy to sort of get in that frame that's like, you know, I as a white leader, uh, I'm not racist. I, I think it's it's really important that we empower people of colour or we bring more people in. So we're going to do this thing to try and bring more people of colour into the organisation. But then you're not changing anything about the cultures uh, and the working behaviours, the working practices, um, how your professional behaviours are really coded white and will enable a certain type of person to do better over another. So you're just bringing people into an unsafe environment. You're bringing people of colour into a place where like their ideas won't be valued as much, that they might eventually leave and burn out and sort of for all sorts of different reasons. And you're still stuck in a place where like, we're still incredibly white at our leadership positions. We're still incredibly white across our management positions. We have more people of color, but they're all in like entry-level jobs or like at the bottom of the pile. And they're not digging into that data deeper to see where the actual problem is and where they have to apply different changes. So I think we are very early on in that discussion around sort of anti-racism. And I think where so much of the work right now is shifting that frame and trying to challenge diversity and inclusion, I think more work needs to come in terms of trying to embed that into a systems way of thinking. And I think a lot of organisations right now just want someone to turn around and give them like a manifesto and it's like, these are the specific policy changes and things that you need to do to be anti-racist. And it's just not, it doesn't work like that. It's deep cultural reflection and sort of change work that takes a long time and is frustrating and uncomfortable and isn't sort of, doesn't neatly fit into sort of annual planning cycles. Absolutely. And I would kind of put it out there that it requires that to go on at the individual level 
as well, not just the organizational level, but, you know, for all of us to step back and and look at this stuff. And as you say, undergo that deep and sometimes uncomfortable process of self-reflection and and acknowledgement and, and then bring that into workplaces. So on this podcast, we often talk about uh, subjects or themes of colonialism and white saviorism, particularly in relation to international development work. I'm interested to understand your interpretation of how those structures impact the charity sector in the UK. Deeply. (laughs) I mean, um, I think particularly when you look at the UK, so I think as we've grown more popular, we've had more interaction with sort of various activists and actors within the charity sectors across different parts of the world and in the US and various other countries. And I think there's always a question in terms of why do we not work at a more international level? And we might do at some point down the line. The real answer to that is that we're still quite young and we're still developing ourselves as an organisation, as a campaign group, and we're just sort of trying to find our niche uh, at the beginning. But I think in a lot of ways we do work across the international level because we do we focus on the UK because we all work within the UK sector we're all at the moment London based and work within a, a variety of different London based organizations but when you look at the history of the charity sector and across the world when you look at some of the really massive NGOs that exist across countries we save the children and the international Oxfam all of these places that have like offices of various different um, powers and sort of capacities across the world they are started in the UK and they are grounded in a particular tradition of uh, sort of charity work. And I think when you look at that basis, even if like the founding principles are legit, even if like you, they do fantastic work, there's no critique of that, uh, at least in this way, it's a deeper thing where like it's that white saber tradition where you have British empire and you have sort of the way that that influences people's thinking, the way that that influences how they're exposed to different cultures, how they're exposed to what's going on in the world. And even just that core idea of I need to do something to help them. It's already quite a sort of exploitative sometimes, or just very directional relationship where you are seen as the one in capacity to do something to help this person and they can just kind of wait for your assistance. And I think that is grounded into organisations in the UK to their very core, particularly across international development. And I think as you see more of these organisations try to deal with that and try to sort of pull their power base away from the global north and more to the global south, there's still these underlying tensions because you're not necessarily, you might be looking at it in terms of an organisational power frame and how you diversify and how you bring new ideas in, but you're not actually challenging that sort of colonial ideas that underpin all of this work and how it came about. So I think it's really important to look at colonialism within that context and see how particularly British colonialism deeply influences the sector in the UK, but also across the world as well. Absolutely. And we've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast, you know, this idea of othering and, you know, and how that fits into the charity or international development sector and and model of working is that, you know, I have something more to offer you and I will come and give it to you because you're different and my ideas are somehow, you know, worth more. It makes me wonder how it plays out um, domestically in terms of things like hiring processes, 
but also how that plays out in international offices, so country offices, where you've got expatriate staff heading up the organisations and local staff often on different pay grades to expatriate staff. Is that something that's coming up in your in your discussions more globally? Yeah, and I think... At the moment, we are focused more on sort of UK-centric charities, and I think we're still developing our thinking on uh, that international development sector as a whole, because there's a lot of complexities within that. And I think there's so many, there's so much depth to all those different structures. And I guess my immediate thinking is like, particularly when you look at country offices and how that works. And I think quite a few organisations over the last couple of years, sort of sort of 10 years or so, have been trying to sort of build up the power of country offices or change the relationships that they have. Some have even decentralised and sort of had gone from having one big headquarters in London to sort of multiple different regional offices. And I think across the board, I've constantly heard like all sorts of challenges when it comes to sort of hiring and getting someone that fits the mould and sort of uh, sort of fits this idea of uh, what a sort of senior uh, staff member within that region would look like. And you see how local staff can really struggle within that context because you're not necessarily of the right background. Your education might not necessarily be seen as being on par with the Oxbridge graduate from London. And sort of there's all these sort of really in-depth and deeply embedded frames that mean that expatriate staff do a lot better in these places. And you have the sort of the normalisation of at some point in your career, you'll go off to do a senior job in a country office and you'll be there for a little bit and you'll do really great, but then you'll leave like there's already so much distance between yourself and the problems you're actually working with and the sort of day-to-day work that you're doing Uh, and all of these things need to be looked at under the microscope and really tackled before you can actually decentralize that power and sort of really bring equity uh, into these global structures. Do you think institutional racism affects programming decisions in terms of charity programs or international development absolutely i think at the it's most obvious it's looking at philanthropy and looking at how relationships with major donors work how relationships with funders work and sort of the burden of proof and sort of reporting and all of these sort of different structures that we live in a system where sort of white people do have more power than others and I think when you look at sort of people who have a lot of money they're generally more white and just that power of sort of wanting to know what is happening with their money and sort of how it puts them in relation to local people and sort of the problems they're dealing with that already means that like a very western idea of what is wrong with the world uh, and there's a very particular bubble is what's going to shape those decisions in terms of what programs you open and which ones do well if you as an organisation want to expand your funding and sort of try and get access to more unrestricted funding, you have to court these really popular projects in particular parts of the world and particular issues and uh, that are seen as not controversial in order to develop yourself and sort of get to a place where you can sort of also court more unrestricted income. And I think there's so many things going in the world and there's so much sort of uh, work happening in the humanitarian space that is just uh, completely off uh, off the agenda people just uh, aren't talking about don't know about and there's all of these different things that impact how these decisions are made and what programs go ahead and at what level and which one gets prioritized over another and it's not necessarily intentional but i think because we're not understanding those frames or we're not looking at it at that level we're also buying into those frames and sort of enacting them ourselves. 
you know, it's that concept of donor driven programming, obviously, and then bringing in that extra lens around institutional racism. And then the other lenses of, you know, things like soft diplomacy. So, you know, how, how aid can sometimes be linked to trade. Um, and I know in the UK, I think DFID has just merged what, with, the foreign office. with the foreign office. Yeah. Yeah, and that happened in Australia a couple of years ago. We had AusAid merge with DFAT. Um, so Australia's aid program is now delivered through the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And so what you're saying gets me thinking about, you know, there's that extra lens that brings in the, the power dynamics of countries, not just donors and organisations. I think there's also like within the sector itself and when we're doing, when we're making decisions on programs, when we're making decisions on campaigns around AIDS and sort of various different forms of comms work around aid, we can end up buying into that um, sort of way of thinking in that frame by just trying to sort of specify and sort of narrow down a problem, like, like sort of doing that analysis and getting specific and sort of tackling a particular thing is absolutely key <laughs> to running a good campaign. But it can also mean that you end up blinding yourself to various other factors. And you can maybe see like, oh, the UK government is going to put this much um, aid funding into this particular country or this particular cause. This is fantastic. But you can sometimes blinker yourself from the trade uh, implications of that and the other political implications that come with that. And what you celebrate as a win in your sort of uh, London-based office might not be seen as a win on the ground. Absolutely. It's that concept of, you know, wicked problems where we try to address something and we cause problems somewhere else. So I read on the Charity So White website about the impact of COVID-19 on BAME communities. And I read that um, nine out of 10 voluntary organizations would close in the next few months in the UK. Where is that coming from? Is that around funding? Yeah, so I guess there's a couple of things within that. So that research specifically was done by the Ubele Initiative uh, in the UK, which is a collective, uh, which do a lot of work around sort of uh, BAME voluntary organisations. And it was a survey of their membership as well, and uh, particularly looking at the sort of financial situation and like access to funds and what that means for them. I think the reality is that a lot of BAME-led organisations are sort of small to medium-sized. They are hyper-local. They are very particularly suited to fit a particular niche. They serve a particular community and they, they do absolutely amazing work, and particularly around the COVID response. They have been vital to the survival of some communities. But when you are so passionate about this cause, when you're so looped into it and you're so sort of centered on that, you are going to spend um, most of your time in that space. And I think the frame in terms of funding and how you access funding and where sort of big funders, like the requirements that they put down in terms of accessing various different types of funding doesn't necessarily fit what you do as an organization. So I think there is that sort of normative side of it where organisations like this uh, might need to bend over backwards to try and uh, fill in a funding uh, submission form or application and then not necessarily get it. And if we have the funders themselves that also uh, are already sort of mainly uh, sort of white at senior leadership level that also buy into all of these same structures of oppression that we're talking about, 
they don't necessarily see when they're making their decisions based on which organization is going to have the most impact, that they are possibly swayed by uh, systemic racism and sort of ideas around uh, systemic racism towards the more sort of well-known, more national, more white organization over the uh, over organizations like these. So I think when you look at that and the sudden drop in funding uh, in terms of donations from local people because of the way that the economy has impacted communities of colour across the UK, you are suddenly in this crisis that the, the rest of the sector is facing a funding crisis as well. But I think also as the sector looks towards like how do we ensure our survival, you can forget uh, to stand in solidarity with these smaller organisations that are suffering more than you and don't necessarily have access to the same structures and power, and power bases that you have. What's the impact of not funding BAME organisations? I think we lose a lot of value. I think particularly looking at Grenfell as a case study, where obviously that that was sort of the awful fire, but it was spread because of um, flammable cladding that was put on the building by the local authorities. And the immediate aftermath of that, you had a lot of people on the, uh, who needed support, a lot of people that needed uh, clothing, needed housing, needed all sorts of sort of assistance. And you had small organizations, small BAME-led organizations doing the bulk of this work that were able to, but didn't have the resource necessarily to meet all of the needs that were there. And you had larger organizations uh, where sort of more government and sort of national supports and sort of national donations were sort of went towards, don't necessarily have the local knowledge to properly deliver that support and really meet local needs. So you have this mismatch where you have these sort of really fantastic organizations that are able to do that, uh, help uh, uh, deliver that assistance uh, effectively. And national organizations are kind of in out of their depths and don't necessarily understand the complexities and the specific issues that this community is going through. And you just don't have that linking up. And there's uh, various research that's sort of shown that like there needs to be a better link. There needs to be a more equitable link where which allows organisations, the smaller organisations, into the room to influence decision making, to be a, a part of that process rather than sort of centralising power within these large national charities that don't necessarily understand the issues on a more granular level. It's interesting you say that. We're we're seeing that here in Australia right now um, as we're recording this uh, nine public housing tower blocks have been locked down as part of the coronavirus response and that was an immediate lockdown and there's over 3,000 residents a large majority of which are people of color many of which don't speak English a huge amount of cultural diversity in there and we are hearing of uh, people deprived of access to food and medical care, 10 or more people locked in tiny apartments, unable to leave, forced testing and so on. And um, there's been obviously an outpouring of support and a lot of money was raised by a state, so a large organization. And there was a, a pushback against that saying, well, Where's the transparency? Who's this going to? How's it going to be distributed? How is it going to be communicated? How do people know what, you know, people felt unsafe about it? And already a, a big issue of safety around the fact that 500 police were uh, deployed to keep people inside. But on the other side of that, we've seen 
community-based movements of people organizing and distributing food, producing documentation in different languages, helping people understand what's going on. And that is that that community-based movement to support fellow residents is actually far more effective. I think both are good examples. That that drive to donate and just help out is is sort of the reactivation of that white saving narrative, and that sort of is we we need to do something. And I think the act of doing something, regardless of whether it has impact or or sort of how you're getting that action, uh, kind of trumps any kind of impact. And I think where you have these discussions happening at leadership positions in sort of small groups and it's sort of very particular type of person you're excluding the voices of the people that are actually directly affected by it you might even think that like what you're doing is right that these people might not necessarily know what's right for them and there's all of these different ideas that kind of come into those discussions and into that into that sort of exchange whilst the communities that are most affected the people that are sort of in isolation in those rooms aren't able to have any kind of agency over what kind of support and what assistance they need and what will help, uh, what will mean, like will really help their situation in terms of making them feel uh, that they're being seen to in some way. And that you can see replicated across uh, the sector, across international development, across sort of poverty charities and all of these sort of spaces. It's how the communities that we serve, the communities and the issues that sort of, uh, those directly in, impacted by the work we're doing in a meaningful position of power within the movement. They're not contributing to strategy. They're not contributing to tactics. They're not contributing to narratives around cons. And it is just these sort of very white spaces and these very sort of white people of a particular background that are having these discussions, that are making these decisions, that are setting the frame of how we talk about them. Yeah, it's incredibly problematic. And, and, you know, it kind of makes you think, okay, people are sitting there going, what are we going to do about this problem without actually talking to the people affected by that issue that's generally created by <laughs> by the people that are trying to solve the problem? John, I want to loop around, I guess, back to a more personal question. What is it about your work that you're most naturally drawn to and what do you find most challenging as well? I'm a campaigner and I think throughout my career I've just sort of got further and further into the sort of strategic campaigning bubble. So I think where I've come from a place that I was very sort of focused professionally on petitions and tactics and sort of various communication-based ways of sort of impacting change or sort of getting supporters to interact with a cause, I've looped back a lot to that sort of key strategy and the sort of the building blocks of that, which is narrative. And it is, how are we talking about this thing? What are the key assumptions that we're not necessarily realizing ourselves that we're making and sort of doing that deeper work and being the slightly annoying guy in the, in the meeting that's sort of uh, asking these difficult questions and sort of pushing the discussion in a, into a direction that isn't that doesn't necessarily feel comfortable, doesn't necessarily feel relevant to what we're talking about it's pulling back from the tactics and thinking more about narrative and particularly within charity so white that's what i'm what that's what drew me the most to it i think for in terms of where we have come from when it comes to thinking about racism within the charity sector um, a year ago to where we are now in the uk you know we came from a place that was very focused on data that was very focused on the specific lack of people of color across these organizations and sort of tackling that through very sort of data-driven ways in terms of recruitment tactics and various other ways to um, more genuine conversations at leadership level around power and privilege around the, the ways 
means that um, different internal organizational structures are buying into systems of oppression, whether that's racism, whether it's sexism, whether it's uh, homophobia and transphobia, all of these different conversations have shifted a lot. And I think it is that narrative change and sort of the sort of very granular thing, how do we do that? That's sort of uh, exciting me the most in terms of what we do. And is it also the most challenging? Totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. it's easy to sort of launch a petition and say like, oh, we've got 10,000 signatures. Like there's a certain level of comfort when it comes to more data-driven approaches where you can sort of, you can set your own metrics and you can feel that you're making impact. But when you're getting into this wider thing of like talking about ideas and talking about assumptions, how do you track that? How do you sort of get to a place where you feel like we've actually, met, uh, we have shifted the narrative? There's like, there's all sorts of things that you can see and, and hear from sort of various organizational communications, the general tone of conversations on Twitter and other places that it can feel like you're making progress, but it's also very hard to quantify in any kind of way, like how much impact have you had and how much has been shifted. And uh, how much further do we still have to go? So there's lots of challenges in that in terms of feeling like, constantly feeling like you're not doing enough or that you're uh, not necessarily understanding how you've managed to do something. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Someone actually said that to me the other day. Is is everything measurable? Like, can we actually measure everything? And, you know, we had it back and forward and we kind of think, well, actually, no. Not in a nice, clean way that we would sometimes like it to be especially coming from the you know the charity or development sector where there is so, so much focus on measurement of outcomes which is important it's really important but some things just can't be measured in that nice clean way is there someone that has been a really strong influence on you in doing good at the moment, I'm really inspired by um, the Advocacy Academy in particular and sort of one of the organisers in our group, uh, Sabah Shafi, who's their managing director. And I think, so they are a South London-based uh, youth organising movement and they work with uh, sort of uh, young people, mainly people of colour, in terms of understanding the issues that affect them, uh, mobilising around change and sort of building really inspiring and engaging campaigns. And I think just their whole approach is so grounded in organizing in deep long-term change in sort of helping young people understand the issues that affect them and helping them channel, channel their power towards making change. And I think that is hugely inspirational. I think the more, as I develop in my career, the more I'm thinking like I want to move towards sort of uh, organizing of young people and seeing sort of young people as I mean, it's, it's, it's a cliche, but like young people are the future. And I think I am so inspired by the really innovative and just really cool campaigns and sort of influencing work that young people are doing across the world. So my next question is a philosophical question. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And when I say that, it's something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. My immediate thought is climate change but i think digging deeper into that it, it is racism and it is sort of the structures that have been built over uh, over generations that have led to the exploitation that has led to climate change and sort of the climate crisis and when you think back to colonialism uh, european colonialism and uh, the sort of 1500s and like the discovery of america and all of these different sort of things that are happening across the world 
the foundational ideas that sort of placed uh, people of color as sort of lesser than Europeans, the sort of ideas of lands being a new world or sort of unpopulated and sort of going in and uh, sort of extracting resources. And I think there is so much in what is happening right now that goes back to those very core ideas at the beginning, sort of the creation of whiteness, the invention of whiteness, the sort of othering of uh, people of color all over the world, the rejection of their ideas, their belief systems, um, their agency towards uh, their own lands and their own sort of futures. And I think tackling those frames and tackling those ideas and deconstructing them and building something different is and will remain for a long time the the key challenge that faces everyone if we want to tackle a lot of these systems of oppression. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it right now, what would it be? I think I would just tell people to take the time to do some real self-reflection, to really challenge uh, your own ideas, your own ways of thinking, to think about where they come from, to dig in deeper into sort of what has shaped your experiences and your ideas of the world. And that goes hand in hand with uh, exploring your own privilege, whether that's white privilege, male privilege, light skin privilege, all of these different things, and really dig deeper in order to do the work that's needed to transform those ideas. Excellent. I love that. John, where is your favourite place on earth? I think probably it's the Andes Mountains in Ecuador. That's uh, where I'm from. Um, and I think there's something about just the wildness of them and sort of how uh, the remoteness of them, just walking around, it's a really special place to me. And I think um, there is a sort of spiritual collect- connection to it as well. Whenever I'm there, I just feel sort of closer to family and sort of close to myself in a way. And it's um, something about being such sort of wild and... Yeah, just seeing volcanoes and mountains all over it is um, really special. Beautiful. Prior to coronavirus, is that somewhere you got to go fairly regularly? Yeah, we were going to go this year, actually. So hopefully, if all, uh, if, if everything goes better, hopefully we'll get to go next year. Yeah, it's a very different world, isn't it? Are you reading any books at the moment? At the moment, I'm reading a book called uh, Woman Who Glows in the Dark. Uh, that my sister recommended actually so it's um by uh, elena avila it's um it's kind of an anthropological and spiritual look at uh, aztec medicine and sort of indigenous american medicine uh, sort of practices and i think it but it also looks at the ways that african uh, spirituality and sort of medi- medicinal practices as well as uh, aztec and sort of indigenous american and western medicine kind of melded together and sort of created what is now sort of the way that um, sort of native american healers currently work and there's something really interesting just looking at how these different practices influenced each other and how particularly uh, curanderas and sort of healers uh, from that tradition were able to sort of play with these three different systems and see the commonality and connect with people on that level yeah amazing that sounds fascinating what about podcasts? Do you listen to podcasts? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I'm currently listening to, um, well, I'm, I'm kind of taking a break from more political podcasts and looking at um, Radio Menea, which is an American podcast by two uh, queer Latinas that just explores uh, Latin music, uh, everything from reggaeton to salsa and sort of looking at just analysing it, talking about it, but also looking at the social implications and sort of uh, deep diving into lyrics and themes, which is quite interesting. Well, John, it's been wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I know it's early morning for you there. So I really appreciate you coming on. I know you guys are really busy. Do you want to direct people to any campaign materials or website? 
I think the main thing would be our website. Uh, so it's uh, charitysowhite.org, um, which I developed <laughs> myself and maintain at the moment. I think we're trying to build a space uh, to just analyze self-reflection and sort of build a platform where people can have open and honest conversations and talk about issues around race and power and privilege in a deeper way. And um, for anyone listening, I highly recommend you follow Charity So White on Twitter as well. Well, John, thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge and all your resources. It's been really wonderful to chat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.